I'm Rachel Martin. After hosting Morning Edition for years, I know that the news can wear you down. So we made a new podcast called Wild Card, where a special deck of cards and a whole bunch of fascinating guests help us sort out what makes life meaningful. It's part game show, part existential deep dive, and it is seriously fun. Join me on Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. This is a CBC Podcast. I was sick because the world was sick. And I couldn't get better until the world improved. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. My solution was to try and make the world a better place from within the confines of my sick mind. But oddly, nothing ever seemed to work. This is Darren McGarvey, a Scottish writer and musician also known as the rapper Loki. He is also the third speaker in this year's BBC Reflectors. I have been alcohol and drug-free for most of the last 10 years. Where did the power to stop drinking come from? Did it come from the state? Was it supplied by the market? The Wreaths are the BBC's flagship lecture series, and this year's theme is The Four Freedoms. We look forward to a world founded upon four essential human freedoms. In a 1941 speech, U.S. President Franklin Roosevelt argued that there are four freedoms that all humans are owed. Freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from fear, and this episode, freedom from want. Does anyone who has ever had to fight for a freedom will assure you it cannot be given, only taken. From Glasgow in Scotland, here is Darren McGarvey. Thank you. Freedom from want is a powerful idea. It's the notion that the basic needs of all people should be met and that by meeting those needs, individuals born into less favourable circumstances stand a greater chance of fulfilling their potential and realising some of their dreams and the precious little time they have on this earth. But while you'd struggle to find anyone who disagrees with this basic principle, it's a principle which is nonetheless open to interpretation. Who is ultimately responsible for making society fairer for the lower classes? Political leaders who arguably lack proximity to the experiences of ordinary people? Markets which prioritise profits over their security and well-being? Or are the interests of the lower orders best served by the lower classes themselves? I hope to convince you that in an age defined by economic uncertainty, political upheaval, and in my view, leadership that lacks any meaningful social, economic and cultural proximity to the common man and woman, the rights and responsibilities of the individual, as defined historically by the right and left, are no longer sufficient. I'll outline why both the left and right's definitions of the individual, and by extension, the corresponding notion of personal responsibility, have become increasingly self-serving. They persist only to preserve the illusion 
of ideological continuity rather than being of any benefit to individuals themselves. And I'll argue that the true freedom from want, as envisioned by Roosevelt, will only ever become a possibility when the citizen who wishes to improve both their personal circumstances and wider society acts with intention in both the personal and political realms. For as anyone who has ever had to fight for a freedom will assure you, it cannot be given, only taken. In January 2013, at the end of a seven-day drinking spree, about to open another bottle that would hopefully tide me over until the off-licence opened, a woman whom I have never met sent me a message on social media. It was a link to an article that would snap me out of my drunken daydream. Six harsh truths that will make you a better person. I figured it would pass some time and began reading. By the time I got to number one on the list, everything inside you will fight improvement. The urge to continue drinking quite simply left me. What had occurred was the profound psychic shift only a high targeted dose of the truth can bring about. For years, I had dined out on my trauma, my losses, my grief and my anger, using them as excuses of varying plausibility to justify my descent into alcoholism. It's true that I faced significant adversities in my youth. They had a lasting impact on my character and emotional nature for better and for worse. But at some point, I lost touch with the idea that a better life was even available to me. I became resigned to the misery of depression, the painful solitude of self-isolation, and the invigorating, if toxic, effects of my righteous anger. I was sick because the world was sick, and I couldn't get better until the world improved. My solution was to try and make the world a better place from within the confines of my sick mind. But oddly, nothing ever seemed to work. The article read like having a mug of cold water thrown in your face. My blunted faculties sharpened. A self-awareness pierced the thick fog of denial. And after I finished the piece... I poured what remained of my alcohol down the kitchen sink and told my long-suffering flatmate I was done with the drinking. From that day, my recovery began in earnest and I wouldn't lift a drink for a further two years. And save for a few slips along the way, I have been alcohol and drug-free for most of the last 10 years. How was this achieved? Where did the power to stop drinking come from? A power which had eluded me almost every day of my 20s. Did it come from the state? Was it supplied by the market? I got sober and run down community centres and churches where no experts or professionals were present. Indeed, my many interactions with public services throughout the years played some part in my adopting the false belief that I would never get free of addiction. Instead, I got well in rooms 
where the advice dispensed came from other sufferers of the problem and not from medical men and women or well-meaning theorists. Mutual aid groups where there are no hierarchies, no professional titles and no state or private funding. I learned how to traverse the greatest challenge I have ever faced as an individual, the illness of addiction, merely by following the suggestions of those who had gone before me. I did this in a community where it is understood that we could only ever hope to be of any meaningful or lasting use to that community by first making ourselves accountable. Accountable for whatever part we play in our adverse circumstances. Accountable for the harms we have caused, for our dishonesties, our attitudes and our behaviours. And committing to living by certain principles in all of our affairs. In those rooms, we achieve freedom from the want for easy solutions. Freedom from the want for something to numb the pain and confusion of life. And we achieve this freedom by learning to reconcile our individual needs with the world as it is around us. We claim our right to liberty from addiction by taking that freedom ourselves. I am well aware that there are those whose challenges are too profound to assure medical expertise, whose economic adversity is too acute to simply think your way out of. But in my experience, there are lessons as to how anyone within reason might still better orient themselves in the face of a personal problem rooted in systemic inequality so as to lighten the individual burden and make themselves more useful in the wider struggle for freedom from want. Any right to any freedom, whether from or to worship, may be granted, but can never be perpetually guaranteed when extended to the individual by an external force. In his book, Freedom from Want, The Human Right to Adequate Food, George Kent explores the complicated business of human rights in exhaustive depth through the lens of sustenance. Kent first defines two specific groups, rights holders, those to whom the right to adequate food is extended, and duty bearers, those charged with seeing that this right is fulfilled. Kent argues that while we may rhetorically extend the right to adequate food to all people, as Roosevelt did in his Four Freedoms Address, or even legally as the United Nations and numerous national and international bodies have done since, such a seemingly basic right can be wickedly difficult to implement in practice. It requires allocating resources, determining logistics and following complex chains of accountability. And then there are also the various potential interpretations of the right itself. Is freedom from want achieved by simply providing for those in need? Or is true and complete freedom achieved when citizens possess the means by which to provide for themselves? And who is ultimately responsible for creating the conditions for this empowerment to occur? In the interwar period of the 20th century, a new social democratic consensus emerged from the rubble of global conflict. By the 1940s, social citizenship, defined by enhanced freedoms and protections granted by the state, 
would become the dominant ideology on both sides of the Atlantic. The New Deal and the welfare state were imperfect but genuine attempts to manifest the basic principle of freedom from want, broadening citizenship through social and labour market legislation. The notion that a society's prosperity should be shared, that its economic growth should be equitable, and that the basic needs of all citizens can and should be met remains a powerful one. Imagine how it must have felt to be a working class person in the first half of the 20th century when such high-minded, previously pie-in-the-sky ideas began making their fateful incursion into mainstream political discourse. The object of government in peace and war, William Beveridge stated in 1942, is not the glory of rulers or of races, but the happiness of the common man. While we may take a rather rose-tinted view of the creation of the welfare state, a policy which commanded over 80% public support at the time, there is no denying that the most radical raft of social reforms in Britain's history placed the working classes on a fairer, surer footing. Record levels of employment, a reduction in health and educational inequalities, and better working conditions and living standards generated levels of social mobility unseen until then. Secured in part by an increasingly organised and confident working class that understood its true value, whose collective bargaining became a primary mechanism of social mobility. Aside from the impact of these reforms on living standards and social mobility, what they also achieved was the setting of a precedent intellectuals and politicians could act on behalf of the poorest. They could find economic solutions to poverty if they sought them earnestly. But within 40 years of that historic set of reforms coming into effect, the seemingly irrefutable notion the state had an active role to play in lifting the lower classes and protecting them from the excesses of markets would come crashing down. An uncompromising neoliberal critique, which regarded state interference as dangerous, would come of age, with serious implications for individuals, communities, and, arguably, for democracy itself. Reagan and Thatcher stood at the dawn of a new epoch of free market economics, liberating the individual from the cumbersome interference of the state. Key industries were privatised, Regulation of business was loosened and a new view of personal responsibility supplanted the once dominant notion of social solidarity engendered by the post-war consensus. A view in which individuals were culpable for being richer or poorer. It's in the space between these two competing visions of society that the battle to define the roles, responsibilities and the rights of the individual has occurred ever since. Throughout the 80s, the right ignored how unfavourable circumstances such as poverty, social exclusion, addiction and crime were demonstrably linked to the structural inequalities of rapid deindustrialisation. The right ignored subsequent attainment gaps in education between social classes and the even wider gulf between state and private schools. The right ignored widening health inequalities and the inverse relationship between need and provision documented in the government's own findings. 
the myopic sale of vital social housing stock at discount with no plan to replenish it, creating a two-tier housing market which transferred wealth from insecure renters to affluent property owners. But the right approved of labour market reforms which limited the workers' ability to bargain for better paying conditions as the industries around which countless communities were situated were closed with no strategy in place to deal with rising unemployment. Failure to succeed in these structurally unjust conditions of economic humiliation was increasingly and wrongly chalked up to the bad choices, poverty of aspiration, weak character and lack of resilience of the lazy working classes and the feckless poor. Too much month at the end of your money? Work harder. Already have two jobs but can't make enough to live a decent life? Budget better. Struggling to cover the costs of raising children? Should have thought of that before you had them. Meanwhile, a shrinking group of winners began accumulating opportunities, assets and wealth at a rapid rate, in part due to decisive, targeted state interventions in the housing market, the education system and, of course, the tax code. These winners were then furnished with an intoxicating myth of meritocracy to account for their unparalleled personal, professional and corporate success. In this vision, the individual who ascends by acting in their own rational self-interest becomes the bulwark of liberty. They miss how the individual who cannot succeed faces the withdrawal of the means by which they might lift themselves out of the quicksand. How they become prey to the bedevilments of a poorly regulated free market, precarious work, ill health, residential instability, cyclical consumerism, debt, distress and despair. In this vision of society, where the customer is always right and the worker is always wrong, even when they are the same person, merit is defined always to the advantage of the winners, who become blind to the true extent of their structural privileges. But if it is in fact the case that we do live in a meritocracy, and that all the best people are in all the top jobs, then why, one might ask, is the country such an unmitigated bin fire? <laughs> On the left, these individualist delusions and refrains are robustly challenged. The ludicrous notion that one person, by sheer force of will, can offset multiple deprivations merely by changing their attitude or by working harder, invites rebuke. Those of a more socialist disposition, who believe the plight of the poor is best served through collective action, and the state are, in my view, correct in their analysis. But this perspective almost always lacks any analysis of the role that the individual may still play in producing better circumstances, even within that unjust context. Furthermore, on the left, it can be offensive to suggest that not all individual problems are rooted in failing systems, that some of our problems are of our own making and therefore our own to solve. 
I have been accused of engaging in what is tantamount to victim blaming for pointing out the various ways an individual who lacks insight, self-awareness, or like me, becomes gripped by the malady of addiction, can make their experience of a structural problem like poverty much harder than it has to be. And I have been criticised for asserting that in many cases, before a person can begin to consider acting meaningfully upon an unjust society, they must become willing to change themselves. The most radical thing some people will ever do. I am always being reminded by my comrades that only a political revolution and wholesale overhaul of the system will ever be sufficient in raising the quality of life of those who languish in precarity and poverty and exclusion. But even in the event of our hypothetical utopia becoming a reality, where a service rises to greet every unmet need and every resource is made available to tend to every ailment, all the experts and money and time in the world will not prevent an alcoholic from drinking until they decide to stop. This is evidence of agency at the level of the individual. Agency which, when channeled correctly, may have as transformative an effect on a person's circumstances as entourages of wraparound professional support. Individual sovereignty is overstated by the right and underemphasised by the left. On the left, the sovereignty of the individual is too often only recognised when that person fits themselves to a specific left-wing cause. All other forms of individual expression or political activity are deemed indulgent, worthless, futile, servile or superficial. For a certain kind of social justice advocate, it is simply implied that the non-political individual is a passive economic victim who possesses no agency. Meanwhile, on the right, while much lip service is paid to individual liberty, this agency is only recognised and celebrated when expressed within certain ideological parameters. As long as one's personal sovereignty is channelled along the permitted lines of mindless consumerism, the acquisition of material goods and property, commercial conquest, and the celebration of an arguably airbrushed and whitewashed history, then you're free to be whoever you want to be. Should, however, an individual dare to express their agency by joining a protest or by organising with a trade union for a wage they can live on, then they can expect their sovereignty to be constrained, usually, ironically, by state intervention. Neither the left nor the right's definition of the individual's role contacts the reality of what the individual may face in a time of profound social, economic and political emergency. A nightmare scenario where they are told only low wages will keep their poverty at bay, that only a recession can beat inflation, and where democratically elected leaders who once protected the individual from the excesses of free enterprise have handed that role to the markets. Who is ultimately responsible for creating freedom from want in this bleak context? Political leaders whose contribution to society can be measured and how many billion they intend to cut from public services? An under-resourced, 
apolitical poverty industry where the problem of inequality is divided into countless seemingly unrelated subgenres with no overarching analysis or narrative of inequality's true systemic nature? Or must a more radical communitarian approach be adopted in light of the cold hard truth that for some, help is not coming? A call to personal responsibility in this context, dispensed from a dispassionate distance by someone who has never lived it, rings hollow and smug. But a call to action from someone who has been in your shoes, who understands the colossal effort required to lift yourself up, far from patronising, can act as the catalyst in rendering adverse circumstances gradually more favourable. Taking responsibility is not about accepting blame for our adverse circumstances. It is simply about recognising the part we can play in improving them, whatever their cause. The belief that we as individuals can exert gradually greater degrees of authorship over ourselves and by extension, our circumstances. Taking responsibility is about daring to reject the allure of permanent cynicism, misguided apathy and toxic fatalism and instead embrace the painful process of change one step at a time. The man with substance abuse problems arriving early at the local needle exchange is taking responsibility. The asylum seeker fleeing a war zone with her children who has set up camp at a local library to improve her English is taking responsibility. The single mother who embarks on a higher education despite the challenges of childcare is taking responsibility. And I would contend that in the horrid event that the services on which each of those individuals depend were to be suddenly and callously withdrawn, that each of them may still, in the right conditions of social solidarity, confront and traverse their difficulty by some other means. Did getting sober solve every problem in my life? No. Did it offset the vast socio-economic inequalities I faced at different points? No, of course not. But by... <clears throat> I don't want it to end. <laughs> this is what savouring the moment feels like. <clears throat> But by prioritising the most urgent problem and becoming resolved to confronting it, I was, after a time, better placed to bring myself more fully and consciously to the great many other challenges beyond my immediate control. And as my personal load lightened one day at a time, my attention gradually turned to how I might help others. Only when the individual, conscious of their circumstances both personally and within a much greater socio-economic and political context, chooses to act at both the personal and social level where the conditions for true freedom from want ever become possible. To use George Kent's terminology, the rights holders must in effect also become the duty bearers. Those who desire freedom from want to the extent that it is in their mental, physical and emotional capability must now begin to rise and take that freedom, whatever that freedom looks like for them. 
This is not an argument for abandoning people in their adversities. Far from it. This is a clear-sighted assessment of the reality many already face or will potentially face in the near future in a society where the assumption that help is on the way is no longer a safe one. It's an expression of a belief that most people are capable of more than they or anyone else dares to believe. Social justice must be about more than advocating on behalf of the misfortunate, but also about walking alongside them long enough to understand their challenges more intimately, developing the rapport necessary to build trust and sometimes to speak frankly. It must be about including the powerless in their own empowerment. And part of that process is recognising not simply what is quite obviously beyond an individual, but also about identifying that which is within their capability. Some, understandably, will insist that's not fair. The individual cannot be expected to be capable of offsetting such systemic injustice. And in a sense, morally, they are correct. But the situation we find ourselves in now is beyond what's fair or right. I make this argument not because I believe it is moral, but because I believe there is no other choice. Some victims will have no choice but to become survivors. Those who feel voiceless will have no alternative but to speak up and be heard. Those who would advocate on behalf of the powerless must learn that to challenge power on a mass level, or indeed to assume it, must begin with cultivating the belief in the individual that power is available to them. For if your worldview dictates that a shift in the balance of power is the only means by which those on the sharp end of inequality can be lifted up, then surely part of that process of empowerment is about supporting the seemingly powerless to locate a small part of that power within themselves. Where no prior experience, relevant education or firm intention is required, only a willingness to participate, no prior condition but desire, no entry level but belief. The status quo's days are numbered in low digits. This is your society. This is your life. This is your time. And so all I ask you is this. What are you going to do about it? Thank you very much. You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1 in Canada across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. From Glasgow in Scotland, this is the third of this year's BBC Reef Lectures with Darren McGarvey. I'm Nala Ayed. I'm Rachel Martin. After hosting Morning Edition for years, I know that the news can wear you down. So we made a new podcast called Wild Card, where a special deck of cards and a whole bunch of fascinating guests help us sort out what makes life meaningful. It's part game show, part existential deep dive, and it is seriously fun. 
Join me on Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. This year's Reith Lectures focus on the four freedoms, a concept that came from U.S. President Franklin Roosevelt. Freedom means the supremacy of human rights everywhere. Our support goes to those who struggle to gain those rights and keep them. In his State of the Union speech of 1941, he argued that there are four essential freedoms that all people are owed. Freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from fear, and freedom from want. In this lecture, McGarvey argues that freedom from want, from poverty and desperation, cannot rely on compassion from government. Because governments have done their best to be as compassionless as possible. True freedom, he says, must come from within. Here is the second part of his lecture, followed by a Q&A hosted by the BBC's Anita Anand. So can I turn that last clarion call, which has had such an electrifying impact on the audience, when you said, what are you going to do about it? What do you want all these people to leave this auditorium? What do you want them to do about it? Well, everyone will relate to that dichotomy at the level of the personal and the political. I mean, some people say the personal is political, but then it sort of just stops there at that kind of easy platitude where really what they're saying is you should just devote all of your personal life to the kind of politics I'm into. But actually, most individuals know that there is an internal struggle going on and then there is the contemplation of what's happening at the wider social level. And really what I've tried to do with this is just to reconcile these seemingly competing ideas of collectivism versus the individual. Because I have seen with my own eyes and experienced it in my own life and witnessed it in the lives of, of many people around me what a profound impact it can have when an individual learns to assume a certain level of culpability for some aspects of their life or their behaviour, and then having freed themselves up from those problems, can turn their attention to the wider community. You sort of said in in the lecture, you spent a lifetime thinking about this and doing this and being buffeted from the left and buffeted from the right. Which is tremendously disorientating. I can imagine. But you're going to hate this. While you were speaking, I was thinking, actually, I can see a circumstance where both the left and the right will claim you as their own. You know, where the right will say, oh, he's saying personal agency. That's what we think. It's compassionate conservatism. Or the left will say, he's talking about redistribution of wealth. He's talking about restructuring society. That's what we believe in. In truth, it's a difficult position to take. I'm trying to get a message to the public. This is what I believe in. I'm more comfortable to inhabit that belief now. Because if you've lived it, you can't deny what I'm saying. Mm. You use language very deliberately and you wield it very beautifully. But you refer to lower classes and the lower class. And I thought, I can't think of another voice that would say that. I could hear working class. Did you deliberately choose it? Why? This is a contentious term, but usually it's people who experience a certain level of anxiety about using the term because they are using it from an elevated social position. I don't find that as controversial a term because I come from that. So I try not to get too tied up now in the terminology of things. As long as I'm saying something that falls within the wheelhouse of my own experience, then I feel more confident to use the language that's appropriate to me. And if anyone wants to pull me up for anything, I'll be happy to engage with that. You know what? Let's open this up to the audience now, because there's so many people who do want to engage with this. The lady over there at the end. 
I'm Professor Helen Minnis. I'm a child and adolescent psychiatrist. And I loved what you said about for better or for worse, because we know that severe adversities like malnutrition can be really damaging neurologically to children's development. But we also know that people who've lived in situations of severe adversity like yourself can really thrive and can really demonstrate exceptional talents. What do you say to services about the people that they meet and their personal power? First of all, how are you educated about what it is that you're dealing with? If you're working in addictions or if you're a GP, I mean, what is the extent of your understanding of addiction? It's not something that's given great consideration, which is really strange in communities where addiction's a real issue. So you've got a workforce that's not adequately informed about the problem. You've got a lack of resources to deal with the problem. And all this means is that we run a skeleton service in health and education and everything else. So really, I always say when I'm out talking to professionals, if I get the chance to do that, all this talk about cost of living crisis and how we want a better society, the professionals need to get on board and become willing to sacrifice something to make that happen. Usually the professionals, they cringe a little bit at the rallies. They don't want to be seen out involved in things. But then when it starts hitting their wages, you'll see how actually some new options come on the table. And that's the only silver lining on this storm cloud is that increasingly people of higher social classes will be hit by the cost of living crisis and suddenly they might become hopefully a wee bit radicalised. Can I just go back to the question asker? I mean, what is your lived experience of this? What I really hear and what you're saying that's most important is that often we don't respect the lived experience of the people that we work with. We don't realise that if you haven't lived in poverty yourself, well, you better learn from people who have. And that can actually help to shape what other skills you've got. So for me, there needs to be much more of a respect and a dialogue. Thank you. My name's Peter Kelly and I work for the Poverty Alliance. There's a couple of key messages that I take away or key lessons maybe from, from the lecture. The first is that freedom from want isn't simply about resources, it's about power. And if we don't have an analysis of power when we're talking about poverty, we will fail from the outset. The other is that individual agency is absolutely vital for social change. I guess my question is how do we if we're to refocus or advance an approach that, that's going to recenter or rehabilitate, if you like, personal responsibility, how do we do that in a way that doesn't reinforce that negative, stigmatizing narrative that, that damages people ultimately? Terminology is always appropriated differently depending on what people's politics are. Some people, they prefer to say personal agency. Some people even say, and check this, self-responsibility, which is just, oh my God, are you so ideologically fixated that you can't just say the words most people understand the meaning of, mm. you know? Every working class person in this country knows what personal responsibility means because every day they have to assume it in their lives, raising their kids, turning up for their work, being involved at the community level, whatever that looks like. It's not controversial when you're not mired in all the tangle of ideological continuity and you're just trying to live your life. So I wouldn't even give it a second thought. Use the language that feels appropriate to you. Do you ever worry, or has it ever happened to you, where somebody will say, you know, Darren, you used to be one of my people, but now you've got book publishing deals, you're on the telly, you live in a nice house. Yeah. You, you, you stop being one of our tribe. Yeah, I mean, my, my relationship to the means of production has changed. It has to be said. But I pride myself in the fact that every single opportunity that I explore, it's understood that whoever I'm collaborating with 
that there is always going to be a continuity of what I have to say anytime I, I have a platform. I might get a nicer suit, I might live in a nicer house, and I have the right to enjoy those things, as anyone would if they had been as lucky as me to get the breaks that I have had. So I'm not going to walk around anymore, as I have done in the past, with this deep pang of survivor's guilt, apologising for my own existence. Because the truth is, most working class people are happy to see you succeed, and they feel represented by you. When it comes to the next generation, there are two ways of doing this, and, and I've heard this sort of with the, the immigrant experience as well, which is, number one, I want to give my children everything that I never had. I want them to be safe from all of this. And the other is, I want to remind them where exactly they came from and how hard it's been. How do you navigate that? It's tricky. It's tricky to navigate that because ultimately what you hope and what has been the trend until very recently is that generationally there is some material improvement in the conditions of the lives of a family. And it's only very recently now that that's kind of started to regress slightly. I'm one of the lucky ones who got a foot up the ladder, but I'm not ready for pulling the ladder up behind me. So actually what I do is I kind of, I notice things like how my son expects his uniform to be on a radiator in the morning when he gets up, or how my daughter's first question in the morning when she gets up is where am I going today? And I think about that and I think, what a gift to be able to set those expectations. Because these were expectations that we didn't have, that you were going somewhere every day, that your clothes would be worn when you got up. And uh, so I experienced gratitude for that, and that for me is quite grounding, and, and sometimes that kind of weird twilight zone, interclass twilight zone that I exist in sometimes. At the end of the day, nothing will elicit a conservative impulse like having children. So you need to watch that. You need to watch that because sometimes people have kids and then that becomes the airtight justification they need to just completely abandon their inner integrity and just go, go for whatever suits them. And, and while it's still true that, that I would eat your kid to save my kid, uh, I'm not quite ready to swing away in the other direction just yet. Okay, good to know. Uh, let's uh, take the question from here, okay. Thank you, Darren. I feel I'm arriving at this conversation at a strange time. <laughs> uh, my name is Fiona Duncan. I chaired Scotland's Independent Care Review and I'm now responsible for supporting its implementation. Over 5,500 people took part in the Independent Care Review and over 3,000 of them were children and young people who had experienced Scotland's care system. They'd also experienced poverty. They understood addiction. They understood homelessness. They understood prison. And they used their agency to bridge that proximity gap to try and make sure that the people who have uh, the responsibility for them in Scotland know what to do. And they imagined a better future for the children coming after them. You were a boy campaigner. You've just said that you're a cannibal dad. And I'm wondering, <laughs> what, um, what would you say to the 3,000 children who took part in the care review that they should be hopeful for? When it comes to, to young people who come from disadvantaged backgrounds, I was that kid, and then I went on to work with those kids very closely, including in residential settings and criminal justice settings and on street corners. I mean, Friday night, we would go out onto the street just to make contact with them. Sometimes other people will place limitations on them based on their understanding of what these young people are capable of, and that's why I come out swinging with this kind of message. Because I know how it resonates with people who know that they've got something about them to offer but no one has confirmed that inkling. And it wasn't until someone said to me, you should write a book. I was like, okay. <laughs> no one had suggested that to me before, and I sure as hell didn't think of it. 
And so there are all kinds of interactions that we can have with our, our young people where they just need to be validated for what they already do well. It can be life-changing if you're in a, a class, young people who don't see themselves as literate, and uh, you compliment someone on their handwriting, right? And they reject the compliment out of hand. They say, no, it's a mess. I can't write, I can't read. Can't write, can't read for our global audience. <laughs> um, and then if you look back at them, you'll see them kind of looking at, checking the writing again, kind of look at you, and they've got this little bashful look, embarrassed look in their face. Because what you've done is you've acknowledged something they already can do, that they're already good at. So suddenly it's like, oh, well, I've banked that. So how can I add to that? Rather than I'm just this empty receptacle that has to be filled with knowledge that comes from other places. And so if any of them are listening, you know, I think they're on the right track by participating. And I say, go for it. My name is Simon O'Hagan. I write about radio for Radio Times magazine and elsewhere. I'm thinking back to the beginning of your lecture and the moment you described when you did not open the next bottle. And I'm just wondering what you think was within you that enabled you to succeed in, ex in escaping your situation and how that might be applicable to other people. Yeah, I didn't know what happened at the time, but it was a feeling of waking up, almost, which might sound a bit kind of woolly and esoteric, right? But anyone who's experienced that, emerging from a shroud of denial, they would describe it like that. Because what it is, is you're elevating to another level of consciousness. So the bottom level of consciousness is you're just acting without thought. You're numbing the emotions that come in. You're kind of mindless in a zombie-like state, whatever the problem is. And then if you experience an elevation in your consciousness, you sort of get a momentary chance to observe that from another vantage point within you. And so then you go, oh, hang on, I'm, a, I'm not into this. I don't want to live like this. Now, usually in an alcoholic's journey, that occurs when the supply of alcohol is cut suddenly, which usually does happen if you do a night in the cells or a hospitalisation. But it can also occur when someone just decides to tell you the truth and tell you the truth with love and compassion because they want something better for you. And that, how it pierces that shroud of denial, it's really one of the only things that, that'll get people sober. That initial catalyst often will come from someone in your midst who has no professional experience, who has no understanding. They might not even understand or even accept the definition of addiction, but they might just look you in the eye and they might just say, listen, Darren, you are absolutely screwed. You're ruining your life and you need to sort yourself out. My name's Hannah and my question is, what gives you hope and what message do you have for our current leaders? I wouldn't do the things I do if I didn't have hope. There's many reasons to, to be negative and despairing, but you can't really kind of complete the work that I certainly I do without being driven by some other desire other than just like your own gratification. Because 90% of what I do is not pleasant, let me tell you. Do I have a message for politicians? One message is if you are listening then you need to pay closer attention to the information that's coming from outside of your information ecosystem because all the advice that you're getting about all the problems doesn't seem to be doing a damn sight of good. And so there might be something to learn from exposing yourself to some of the forces out with, the kind of bubble that politicians live in, 
And if they aren't listening, we'll see how it pans out. But they might want to just get out the way because I don't really see how a society that has been governed by the same ideology and the same people who went to the same schools can improve when the crisis is getting even worse. So I think we need not just new personnel, but a, a, a new outlook calling on new experiences. From Glasgow, thank you to our audience here at the City College and a huge thanks to our wreath lecturer, Darren McGarvey. You're listening to Ideas and to the annual Wreath Lectures from the BBC. This is the third in the series featuring Scottish writer and musician Darren McGarvey. The next lecture is from British-American foreign affairs specialist Fiona Hill. She was a member of the U.S. National Security Council and a witness during the first impeachment trial for President Trump. Hill's lecture focuses on freedom from fear, particularly fear of nuclear war. This threat of nuclear Armageddon is not new. Dire predictions have been made before. And during the Cold War, the world teetered on the precipice of a superpower nuclear conflict at least twice, first during the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, and again during the Euro Missile War Scare in 1983. And indeed, the 1980s were replete with academic studies and government reports describing how a nuclear conflict would lead to sun-blocking soot and ash killing crops. Then, the already looming threat of climate change faded into the insignificance against the threat of a nuclear winter. TV series like The Day After in the United States in 1983 and films like Threads in the United Kingdom in 1984 horrified and terrified American and British publics with harrowing depictions of the aftermath of a nuclear exchange. Now, I was a teenager in the 1980s and filled with fear at the prospect of imminent nuclear war. My teenage self checked out hiding spots under the dining room table, in the cupboard under the stairs, and behind the thick yellow curtains my parents hung in the front room to protect our eyes from the blinding flash of the first explosion. I contemplated cowering in a ditch if I was caught outside when the missiles struck. But nothing seemed much of a defence in those circumstances. Safety was an illusion. Fears crowded my mind and fogged my brain. I had my own frequent nightmares of nuclear Armageddon, although Vladimir Putin, the pale horseman, was still a long way off in the future. At the suggestion of an elderly relative who had survived the horrors of World War II, I decided to confront the fears head-on. I would study Russian and try to visit the USSR. I would assert my own agency and fight fear with information and knowledge. I began my studies in 1984, and I ended up as an exchange student in Moscow in 1987 and 1988. The nightmares disappeared as soon as I got there, and I saw the place and the people for myself. Those nightmares have never returned, despite Vladimir Putin's best efforts. And after years of studying Russian and Russia, and decades of closely analysing Putin, I know he's just a man. Operating in his own specific context, he has predictable patterns. He can be counted. And resorting to the use of a nuclear weapon would be an enormous gamble, even for someone who can be as reckless and ruthless as Putin. Nonetheless, Vladimir Putin is a master of manipulating fear. 
He knows fear's value as a political commodity. He knows how to deploy fear for maximum effect. Putin has long threatened to play the nuclear card because he knows the psychological impact it has and the sense of helplessness and hopelessness it engenders. During a bilateral US-Russia meeting at the G20 in Osaka in 2019, where I was present, Putin warned President Donald Trump that he, Putin, would stir up all the old fears of the Cuban Missile Crisis and the Euro Missile Crisis if the US did not engage in arms control negotiations on his terms. He bragged that Russia had already developed sophisticated nuclear weapons that the US still did not have. He was ready to press his nuclear advantage even before the war in Ukraine and to play on our fears. Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who we celebrate in this lecture series Focus on the Four Freedoms, outlined in his 1941 State of the Union address all of the fears and the freedoms. He fully understood the political salience of fear. FDR knew that people could be paralysed by the fear of poorly understood events. They were prone to the manipulation of their fears and thus intimidation and exploitation. If people were filled with fear, they were incapable of taking the necessary individual and collective action to deal with the disaster. Now, fear, of course, is a normal response to a real or perceived threat. All animals exhibit fear, both predators and prey. And a sense of fear is essential to prepare for risk and act in the case of danger ahead. But fear is often engendered by something imagined rather than real. We fear what we don't know, not just what we do, like the danger of nuclear weapons. That's Fiona Hill, British-American author and foreign affairs specialist from the next BBC Reith Lecture. If you'd like to comment on anything you've heard in this episode or in any other, you can do that on our website, cbc.ca slash ideas, where, of course, you can always get our podcast. You can also find us on Facebook and on Twitter. This series was adapted for ideas by Matthew Lazen Ryder. Special thanks to Laura Lawrence and the BBC World Service. Lisa Ayuso is the web producer of ideas. Technical production, Danielle Duval and Austin Pomeroy. Senior producer, Nikola Lukšić. The executive producer of Ideas is Greg Kelly, and I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.